invite you to turn again in your Bibles with me today to Genesis chapter 40. Genesis chapter 40. And while you're turning there, let me say, uh, Christians uh, sometimes uh, suffer without understanding what they are going through or why they are going through it. Uh, But as they trust in their God, they find that God has a purpose. Many of you know uh, uh, Joni Erickson Tata and her story, 19 years old, on a rafting trip with friends, I believe, and falls off, breaks her neck, and ever since has been a quadriplegic. Um, Now, Joni Erickson Tata gives testimony to the fact that God uses her suffering so that she can serve others. She's, she's one of those people that leaves you speechless when you, when you hear her, the ways that God uses her. She, you know, we're, we're fully functioning, and we often serve so little, and she's not fully functioning, and she serves the Lord so much. Such suffering with such joy. And she is an example of someone who realizes that God uses suffering to prepare and equip his people for service. And that's what this chapter is about, God getting Joseph ready for service. Uh, Before we read it together, why don't we pause once again and ask for the Lord's help today. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word, and we thank you for it. We thank you for uh, the ways that it shows us the Lord Jesus Christ and your ways with us in him. Uh, We pray that today your word would not bounce off of us, but it would sink deep into our hearts and that it would shape us and change us and Form us into the people you are calling us to be in Christ Jesus. We pray for the work of the Holy Spirit, for without him this all would be in vain. So Holy Spirit, come and seal your word upon our hearts. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Genesis chapter 40. Let's hear God's word. Sometime after this, that is after Joseph was falsely accused and thrown into prison, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And just make one more comment, and this will be the last one I make as we read. It'll help us to understand that the the office of of baker and cupbearer were not lowly offices. They were important jobs in uh, this time period because, of course, if you wanted to stage a coup or you wanted to get someone out of power, one of the best ways to do it was by poisoning the king. And you would do that through the baker or the cupbearer. So these these were trusted men in Pharaoh's court, men in an exalted position. And they uh, apparently have committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And we read on here, Pharaoh was angry with his two officers. 
the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable... He said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked goods for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head, and Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet... The chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And so Joseph is, uh, he's in Egypt. He has been sold into slavery by his brothers and purchased by Potiphar. Potiphar, the captain of the guard. Potiphar's a major guy in Egypt. And Joseph has no idea what God is doing in his life. Sold into slavery, hauled off to a foreign land in Egypt. Now uh, he, he's in Potiphar's house in this previous chapter and he serves his master faithfully. 
Over time, he gains the trust of Potiphar, and Potiphar places Joseph over his entire household. And uh, then you know how the story goes. Potiphar's wife takes notice of Joseph and tries to seduce him. And Joseph did the right thing out of fidelity to his master and faithfulness to his God. He fled. He got out of there. And Potiphar's wife began to say that he came after me. And so Potiphar, in, in anger, threw Joseph into prison. That's what Joseph gets for his faithfulness and his righteousness in Potiphar's home. And now Joseph is in prison, still without a clue about what God is doing in his life. It makes no sense, like the circumstances that some of you are facing. It makes no sense. Joseph plugs away, and quickly the, the uh, person in charge of the prison sees Joseph's qualities and places Joseph in charge of the prison. And then there's this cupbearer and baker who have dreams and share them with Joseph. Joseph shares their interpretation from God, and, and Joseph nails it, gets the interpretation correct, and it comes true. The the baker is put to death. The cupbearer is restored to his position in Pharaoh's court. And Joseph pleaded with him, remember me. Remember when you are restored. Do this kindness to me. Plead on my behalf. For I have, I have been unjustly sold into slavery by my own brothers. And then here in Egypt I have been unjustly treated. You see how the end of this chapter goes. Joseph is forgotten. That's what he gets for his kindness. That's what he gets for his service to these two men in the prison. Forgotten in prison for two more whole years. So what do you do? Or what do we make of the promises of God in the midst of the perplexing providences of life? Because sometimes it looks like the providence, providences of God are working against the promises of God. Puritan John uh, Flavel used a, an illustration to, to talk about this. He used the illustration of a watch. Some of you will remember this from recent reading. In John Flavel's uh, time period, you could open up the back of a watch and you could see the inner workings of the watch. And inside were these different cogwheels that were driving forward the hands of the clock. But the wheels, when you look at them, appeared to be moving in different directions. Flavel said this is how the promises and providences of God sometimes appear in our lives to us right now. There, there seems to be these wheels working within our lives that are operating in contrary ways. On the one hand, there are the promises of God that He is with us, that He, that he cares for us. And on the other hand, there are the, the, the provident, there's the providence of God, His governance of our lives. And sometimes these two wheels appear to be moving in contrary ways directions. But all the while, God is moving forward 
his purposes in his own time. I think, I think Flavel's illustration explains how Joseph must have been feeling as he languished away in prison and likely how some of you are feeling today. Uh, the two wheels of God's promises and providences seem to be turning at times in opposite and contrary directions. Joseph had had these dreams which he believed that God was going to place him in an exalted position where he even ruled over his, his own brothers. And now he has been sold into slavery by those very brothers and now finds himself helpless in a prison cell after being falsely accused of sexual assault. You see, from our perspective as readers who, who know how this story ends, we can see how the wheels of providence and God's promises are indeed turning in harmony with one another. Yeah, Joseph is right where God wants him to be. But from Joseph's perspective, it looks like his life is just taking a turn from bad to worse. You can guess some of the questions that race through Joseph's mind while he sat in prison. Lord, why, why did you allow my brothers to throw me into that pit? Why did you allow my brothers to sell me into slavery? Why did you allow me to be hauled off to a foreign land? And why, when I sought to serve my master faithfully, did you allow me to be falsely accused and thrown into prison on false charges. And why does it seem like you don't take notice of me? Why am I wasting away in prison? What, what are you doing? What are you doing in my life? Maybe some of you ask similar questions. If you're trusting in God, clinging to his promises, while your circumstances don't make any sense at all. And my friends, if that's the case, this, this story is for you. Because Joseph shows us that while we may not understand, God does. And while it seems like the cogwheels of providence and God's promise are sometimes working against each other, they are actually turning in perfect harmony driving forward the purposes of God in our lives and for our lives. And so this, this story is about a believer clinging to the God of promise amidst the perplexing providences of his life. Later, as we work our way through Genesis, later we will see how God will work through Joseph. But here in Genesis chapter 40, I think we're meant to see how God is at work in Joseph, preparing and equipping him for future service. He's getting Joseph ready for future usefulness and fruitfulness. And we see this, don't we, again and again in the Bible. God uses suffering to work in his people to prepare them for future service and fruitfulness. He doesn't he doesn't bring suffering without purpose. He doesn't allow suffering to go to waste. So the question 
I want us to think about today just one question that we're going to try to answer. What is God doing in Joseph's life? I think the first thing we need to see in this story is that God is building Joseph's character. Everything we've learned about Joseph so far highlights that he was a privileged and gifted man in many ways. We know he was the favorite son, received all sorts of special treatment from that. We also know that he was uh, good-looking. He was handsome in form and appearance, we're told. He was built and he had the looks to go with it. But beyond his special privileges and good looks, Joseph also apparently had incredible gifts of administration. Uh, he, he, he seemed to have a personality that just won people over. Wherever he goes, he rises to the top. Wherever he went, Joseph succeeded. But you see, what we need to understand is God is not merely interested in using Joseph's giftedness. God is interested in Joseph's character. And, and friends, those two things are not the same thing. We sometimes get that mixed up, you know. We see a person who is incredibly gifted and we immediately want to throw them into a position of leadership. But God puts character first. Because a person in a position of leadership without character is, in fact, a recipe for disaster. So remember the, Joseph, remember the Joseph we met when he was back at home, the favored son, special treatment. He was, in many ways, self-absorbed and, and, and sensitive to others. And it's, it's this man that God intends to bear the weight of responsibility of leading Egypt through seven years of plenty, which will require immense amounts of planning and organization, followed by seven years of famine, which will require immense amounts of uh, administration and self-discipline. And if Joseph is a man without character, he will, he will be crushed under the weight of that responsibility. But as we think particularly about some of the characteristic traits that God is seeking to build into Joseph's life, I think one of the things we can key in on here is that God is teaching Joseph patience. Um, he's, he's about 28 years old in this story. He'll be, he'll be 30 before he's Pharaoh's right-hand man. We met him uh, with his family. Joseph was 17 years old. Okay, so in, in, I'm not great at math, but in rough terms, that means 13 years of being a slave and spending time in jail. 13 years of waiting on God to act. 13 years of entrusting his life to the Lord, waiting for the Lord to fulfill his word. And we need to understand, dear friends, that this is how God often teaches his people patience. You know, we, we don't learn it when everything is easy, when everything is going our way, do we? And we often learn patience through times of privation, 
times of setback and disappointment and, and heartache. We learn it when we have to wait upon God and trust in his timing. And if the Lord used 13 years of slavery and imprisonment to teach Joseph patience, then surely, surely that means God will use suffering and disappointment, trials and setbacks to work in us. I, I, think, I think this example of God building character through suffering in Joseph's life underscores how many Christians today have in some ways reversed the thinking of our forefathers in the faith. I think, I could be wrong here, but I think the assumption of many Christians today is that when things are going easy, when everything is going our way, when we have everything we want, we simply say, God loves me, God is blessing me. Yeah, but you know, our forefathers in the faith would say that the very worst kind of adversity that a Christian could ever experience in this world is to never experience suffering. You see, God is building Joseph's character through suffering and disappointment, trials and setbacks. It's, it's the hard things that God ordains for us that he uses to make us into the men and the women he is calling us to be. It's the hard things that build our character and that teach us patience, causing us to rely upon him. So God is building Joseph's character. Here's the second thing we can say about what God is doing in Joseph's life. He is, he is making Joseph into a servant leader instead of the self-centered man of his youth. Do you remember, you remember when, uh, or what Joseph did, actually on two occasions with his brothers, as if the first time he didn't, he didn't learn the lesson, he didn't, he didn't get it, he didn't see the, the effect that it had upon his family life. Comes out of the tent in the morning and says, brothers, I had a dream. And he didn't even need to give the interpretation because the interpretation was obvious. The message to his family and older brothers was simply this. Speaking as the favored son, you all are going to bow down to me. Imagine it. Comes out in his favorite, his, his, you know, his special robe, whatever that coat looked like, without any consideration of his brother's who are getting ready in the morning for a hard day of shepherding. He comes out as the brother that no one likes already. And the first words out of his mouth are, I had a dream. You all are going to bow down to me. You see, totally, totally self-absorbed. He doesn't, he doesn't get it that though these dreams are from God, that his foolish words are inevitably going to stir up Envy and jealousy and strife within the household of Jacob. But keep that in mind now and notice what the 28-year-old Joseph now does. He, he has become sensitive to the needs and troubles of others. Where before he was self-absorbed, he, he now attends to the needs of others, we're told in this passage. There's a deliberate contrast between 17-year-old Joseph and 28-year-old Joseph. Because whereas 17-year-old Joseph 
came in in the morning, and you can just kind of picture him coming out of the tent and just blurting it out. Here's this dream. You're all going to bow down to me. He now comes in and he sees these two men. And he looks upon their faces and he sees that they're troubled and, he, and expresses concern for them. I can see that you guys are troubled. Tell me what's, what's wrong. What's troubling you? The men say they've both had dreams. And Joseph says the interpretation belongs to God alone. Please tell them to me. Back at home, Joseph you know, blurted out his dream without any reference to God. But now in Egypt, Joseph credits his God-given ability to interpret dreams to God. And he uses that God-given gift in service to others. Do you see how God is getting Joseph ready for service? It's a, it's a total reversal. His life is being transformed for service. When he was 17 years old, self-absorbed, insensitive, Joseph wanted to be a leader and wanted others to bow down to him. Now he's attending to others in a prison to whom he owes absolutely nothing. See, in this way, I think we can say, in this way, Joseph is a marvelous picture of the, the servant leadership of our Lord Jesus Christ. You remember, is it in Matthew chapter 20, where Jesus talks about authority in the Gentile world and how Gentiles will lord it over those under their authority. And Jesus says to them, it, it is not to be so in my kingdom. But uh, he who would be first, be last. And he who wants to be great, will be a servant of many. For the Son of Man came to serve, not to be served, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus came to serve and to pour his life out in service. But you know, dear friends, that kind of Jesus-like service is rare in our day, isn't it? Many people in the church just want to be served. They, they want to treat the church like a product to be consumed. And when they're not being served the way that they think they ought to be served, they grumble and complain. Why aren't people taking notice of me? Why aren't people serving me? Why don't people see my needs? And very often that's just our sinful self-centeredness speaking. But you see, here in this story, God gives us a picture of where he wants us to be. Even, isn't this amazing? Even in the midst of suffering, Joseph is serving others. Listen to a sermon this week by Sinclair Ferguson on, uh, on this passage while I was driving around. And he talks about a sermon he heard over 40 years ago. I hope I can remember sermons that I hear 40 years from now. He knew the exact text. It was on uh, the end of Acts 28 and the beginning of Acts 29 when Paul is uh, shipwrecked. You remember they're shipwrecked on, on Malta. And people are, are there and, and, and Paul sees that there's a need for a fire. So what does the apostle Paul do? Gather sticks. He gets bit by a snake and that's a whole other story. But, you know, friends... 
by worldly standards, apostles, apostles don't gather sticks. But by kingdom of God standards, standards, apostles gather sticks. Paul was serving those around him. The real servant, you see, is the one who sees needs and, and, and asks the question, is there anything? What can I do to help? The reason I mentioned that sermon from Ferguson is I want to read something to you. Um, the sermon that he was speaking about has actually been published. Uh, the, the speaker was William Still, uh, Sinclair Ferguson's mentor. And, uh, well, I guess I should preface it by saying this. What I'm going to read, William Still was the pastor of this church for 25 years and would go on to be the pastor for another 25 years. Okay, he's a, he's a Dave Carlberg and he had the right to say what I'm about to read because his people knew that they were loved. Here's what William still said, and he singled out the young people. He said, I'm amazed so many young folk who profess the name of the Lord Jesus are prepared in Christian circles to take so much and give so little. I think some of you young people are lazy I know of some young chaps and girls who slave here on Sunday from morning to night while the rest of you are so lazy or so taken up with boyfriends or girlfriends or whatever it may be that you let them do it. I need an accent here because William still had a, a, a good voice. You should be thoroughly ashamed of yourselves, he said. Paul gathering sticks. Now, the last time I said anything like this, there was a rush to get the broom to sweep the floor, but that lasted only one week. Maybe in 25 years I can say something like that, but you get what William Still is saying, service, service. God wants us to attend to the needs of others, and that's what God is doing in Joseph because he knows the only way Joseph will ever lead well is if he has a servant's heart. And so God is, God is making Joseph into a servant leader. You know, we saw, we saw 17-year-old jo Joseph, self-absorbed, and now he's seeking to serve others. And you know, that change, dear friends, is all the more striking when we give consideration to Joseph's circumstances, because who of us has suffered like this? And in moments of great suffering, what often happens is we lose the ability to look outward and serve others because we become focused upon our, ourselves and our, and our own suffering and what's going on in our own lives and our own fears, our own worries can become all-consuming and the last thing on our minds is, how can I serve others? We're thinking about others serving us. You see how Joseph is a different man because of God's grace? He's changed from the self-centered man of his youth to be an outward-looking man who cares about the needs of others. He has the heart of Jesus. And we should be praying that we would have such hearts too. Then third, what's God doing in, in Joseph's life? Here's the third thing. God is teaching Joseph to trust in God's timing and God's faithfulness. He's teaching Joseph to trust in God's timing and faithfulness. 
We get to the end, towards the end of this chapter. Joseph predicted the cupbearer's release and the baker's demise. And Joseph asked the cupbearer, please remember me. You know, do this kindness, speak on my behalf to Pharaoh. Actually, what Joseph asks for in Hebrew is for hesed. That, that rich Bible word that is often ascribed to God, translated in ESV, steadfast love, a word that carries the idea of loyalty and love. And so Joseph was appealing to the cupbearer, and, and he hoped that this was his ticket out of, of prison. The cupbearer had direct access to Pharaoh. Dream came true. But then as days and then weeks and months passed, Joseph came to the slow realization that there would be no hesed love between him and the cupbearer, at least for a time. He believed that he had been forgotten. Now, again, from our perspective, we, we know how this story goes. We know God didn't forget about Joseph and, and that his timing for Joseph was absolutely perfect. But friends, maybe this is, maybe this is where some of you are right now. You have been waiting and hoping and praying and enduring suffering for, for a long, long while and you feel like God has placed you down in this pit. That's how Joseph describes this prison, a pit. Maybe God has placed you in a pit and you feel as though he has forgotten about you. Perhaps you've you've had to endure a series of, of false hopes, moments when it seemed like things we're finally getting better until your hopes were once again dashed against the rocks. If that's the case, then some of us need to be reminded once again that God's timing is always right. There are no accidents, no wasted suffering, no meaningless time spent in the pit. You may not understand why God has you where you are, and it may not make any sense whatsoever to you right now. But you see what this story is saying to us? What's really important is that it makes sense to God whose, whose wisdom and love is infinitely higher than our own. Joseph teaches us, I think, God, God's, God's wise and loving plan to bring us into suffering is not only good for, us, uh, for others, it's also good for us. That's why Paul can say in uh, Romans chapter 5, we rejoice in our sufferings. How can Paul say that? We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope that does not put us to shame because the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul saying their suffering produces hope by training us in endurance. <laughs> you, know, you, can't, you can't learn how to run a marathon by reading a book about running or by standing around talking about it. The only way you learn how to run at the full distance is by those long, hard months of training in which you endure pain, gradually building endurance. And the only way... You can't, you can't learn character in the same way by standing around and just talking about it. Character comes from enduring difficult times 
and walking with God by faith through those difficult times so that you develop enough understanding of your past and your present to know that whatever your future holds, God will not let you go. And he will not forsake you. He will not leave you there in the pit. Now, we leave Joseph at the end of this chapter, though, and he is left in the pit. For two whole years, we're told at the beginning of chapter 41. First the pit of slavery, now the pit of prison. You see, down, 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 Joseph goes. It's, it's suffering and humiliation before exaltation and glory. Why do, we, why do we see that here in Joseph's life? Dear friends, it's because it's the pattern that the father used in the life of his very own son to get him ready to be the perfect savior of the world. And it's the pattern that he uses in our lives in union with Jesus to train us and to equip us and to get us ready for fruitful service to the glory of his name. So beloved, let's learn this lesson. If there's anything we take away from this story, let's learn this lesson that when the wheels of providence and promise seem to be working against each other, remember that God knows exactly what he's doing. His purposes are being worked out and through it all as we cling to him in the depths of the pit. He is at work in us. So this is Joseph's story, but if, if you are a child of faith, you see, this is your story too. If you're a believer, God orchestrates and governs the circumstances of our lives to, to build our character, to prepare us for lives of service. And so let's trust in his timing knowing that he is a God of steadfast love who, who never, ever forgets his people. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this story. We need it. We need to be reminded that your providence and your promises are never working against one another, but they are in perfect harmony, driving forward your purposes uh, for us. Help us, Lord, to surrender ourselves, our lives, the details of our lives over to you so that your purpose is fulfilled in us. And even while we cry out in the pit, Lord, help us to look to you, trusting in your timing. We pray these things so that Christ might be magnified and glorified in our lives. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.